This man is having a heart attack. Hurry, someone call 911. Don't worry, Dadages friends and family. No one is actually dying in the Dadages studio. But stick around, and you'll find out the mistake I just made that may have cost this imaginary victim his life. This was only a test. Had there been an actual emergency, you would have heard Dadages theme music. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Dadages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Dadages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Friends and family, welcome back to Datages, where everything is totally fine and we have no medical emergencies. Today's episode is a companion episode to the solo cast that dropped August 16th. The datage for this mini series is responsibility is a luxury, accountability is the price you pay for it. If you missed the last episode, I encourage you to go back and check it out. I think you'll find this episode more meaningful in context. So what does this datage about responsibility and accountability have to do with our imaginary heart attack victim in the cold open? We'll get to that in a few minutes. The focus of today's episode is to provide you with some of the practical ways to embrace the responsible, accountable mindset to create a framework that promotes this mindset within your professional environment. And I've decided to add a third episode on this meaningful topic. And that episode will focus on building a family environment focused on the responsible, accountable mindset and instilling it in your children. Let's get down to business. Remember our friends from the last episode, the Navy SEALs? We talked last time about the SEALs team structure of extreme ownership. The principles we focused on can really be boiled down to these three core values. One, in any team or organization, there is a senior leader that is ultimately responsible for success or failure at every level and in every way. Two, while the leader of the organization retains primary accountability for the organization, a culture of success depends upon the rest of the team from top to bottom, embracing accountability for their areas of responsibility. Three, if an organization tolerates substandard performance, it is encouraging substandard performance. While these ideals may come very naturally to the Navy SEALs, the question you are probably asking and rightly asking is, Chad, how can I bring these principles to my own organization? I'm sure you're shocked to know that I have some advice on the subject, as well as some personal examples uh, to share with all of you. Let's talk first about primary accountability for leaders. As the SEALs have shown us, leaders take responsibility for their team or organization. In our last episode, I gave the example of a CEO being responsible ultimately for what happens in the mailroom of his or her company. I'll share a similar example from my own company. 
As I've shared with you previously, my company has embraced a distributed or remote workplace model since before it was cool to do so. One of the greatest challenges we've faced in that model is data integrity. This is a fancy way of saying that we struggle to maintain our company files on a regular basis. We store all of our files on Dropbox. It is a great solution for a remote workforce that has to contend with a vast number of files across multiple projects. But in a system like that, the protocol for file organization and naming becomes essential. It's honestly one of the greatest logistical challenges we face. If someone names a file improperly or saves it in the wrong place, they might as well be taking a match to the document and burning it. Recently, we ran into a problem related to document management in pursuit of our development opportunities in Poland. I was on a Zoom meeting in the last couple of weeks with our development team, which includes members of my internal team here at Aventine, as well as members of our JV partner firm, White Star Real Estate in Poland, and a Warsaw-based construction management consulting arm of Colliers, the major multinational real estate organization. Our team had provided documents to the Colliers team for their evaluation of a development opportunity and we had failed to properly transmit the documents in a complete package for evaluation by Colliers. This undermined the work that our Colliers partners were performing, wasted a week in our evaluation of a particular development opportunity in Poland, and the mistake certainly cost us thousands of dollars in consulting fees and may yet cost us the actual opportunity to acquire the development in a very competitive marketplace. Someone on my team screwed up, to put it frankly, but I recognized that the systems and processes that we had laid out for our document management in this new multinational team structure had not been properly established. Rather than blaming the individual that had transmitted incorrect and incomplete materials to the team, I promptly raised my hand and took full accountability for what was, on my mind, a process failure. Was I directly at fault for the mistake? No. Did I transmit the incorrect files? Certainly not. But I had failed at the highest level to implement proper document management and protocols. And this mistake, while seemingly trivial, could have cost us and could still cost us more than a million dollars in lost opportunity. So where had I failed as a leader? I got lazy or at least complacent. I expected this situation to take care of itself or for our junior team members to figure out solutions to these file management challenges and just adapt what we had done in the U.S. to meet our projects in Poland. Even though I knew from past experience that such problems could be far more complex than they seemed on the surface and required both experienced strategic input as well as a global vantage point that one of our project managers would not possess. I fooled myself into thinking that the problem was too trivial or straightforward to require my attention. I was accountable for the outcome. So what lessons can be learned from this situation and how can they be applied by you and me as we go forward in running our businesses? I'm going to simplify it to, to three points for you to consider. One, process creation. If you want to take ownership for what happens in your organization from the top down, one of the most important things you can do is to implement clear processes and systems. You can't possibly be present and participate in every conversation or interaction that happens in your company. 
But if you create well-defined processes and document them for the team, the process can be there even when you are not. Two, clear communication. I miss this one from time to time. There's certainly a lot of stuff in my head at any given moment. The big picture, the master plan, the context, and the significance of how all of the individual puzzle pieces in our organization come together. If you, like me, are the keeper of the flame in this way, it is important that you remember to share sparks of that flame with the others on your team. You don't have to overwhelm them by throwing them into a bonfire, but you need to at least light some candles to show them the way. Number three, feedback structures. You can provide all of the clear direction and framework you want, but if you don't know what's actually happening, you have no way of providing adjustments or course corrections along the way. It is important to establish a balanced combination of formal reporting and informal check-ins with your team so they can keep you apprised of what is going on at all times. These are some of the tools to improve your accountability as a leader for the benefit of your team. But what about instilling the responsibility accountability mindset within your team? Obviously, we have control of our own mindset, but it takes a bit more effort to set the tone for others in the organization. We'll take a bit of time to cover each point. The first point in building your team is probably an obvious one, hire smart. But the important nuances of this point may not be quite as obvious. Let's go all the way back to datage number one. Surround yourself with people who are better than you are at what they do best and let them do it. Pay attention to the fact that I don't simply say, surround yourself with good people. I don't really believe that there are good and bad people. When it comes to people, there are no absolutes, but many would disagree with me on this point. Here's a quote from one of them. You got good people and bad people everywhere. Who said that? Suge Knight, founder of Death Row Records. And I guess he would know. He's been in and out of court in civil and criminal proceedings for decades. He's filed for bankruptcy. He's been associated with several killings. And he's presently serving a prison sentence in San Diego and will not be eligible for parole until 2034. So, Suge, you got me. I guess there are bad people out there. You've proven your own argument. So in most organizations that are not death row records, you can trust that people are not necessarily good or bad. What is critical, though, is to determine if someone is the right fit. Are they the right fit for the role you need them to play? And do they have the responsibility, accountability mindset you are seeking? On the first point, I often say that I don't hire positions. I hire people. I look for really smart, dedicated individuals and then mold the specific responsibilities to fit their strong suits. More on this to come. On the second point related to selecting individuals with the responsibility, accountability mindset, there are some good keys that you can look for in their background and on their resume. One, I've shared before that in building a team, I look positively at three types of experience, team sports, military, and hospitality experience. These are positive indicators for being able to work in a team setting and being individually accountable. Two, avoid candidates who have bounced around. 
if someone has spent no more than a year or two in, in an employment position, how could they have developed a sense of accountability to any organization? Three, has there been an upward trajectory within the past organizations in which they've been a part? Have previous managers recognized leadership potential and promoted the candidate based upon a capacity for growth? Number four, has the candidate worked for organizations that provide a culture that reflects the one you wish to instill in your organization? In my industry, for example, I would look favorably upon people who have been in successful companies whose culture I respect and appreciate. Saris Regis, Heinz, Trammell Crow, Turner Construction are just a few that come to mind. These resume markers can be helpful keys for a hiring manager, but job applicants take note as well. If you have not structured your resume to demonstrate some of these keys, but you can honestly do so, get on that resume and beef it up. Here I have to disclose something though. I'm better at managing team members than I am at hiring team members. I've reviewed lots of resumes and conducted a lot of interviews, well over a thousand. And I'm still wrong as often as I am right. So how do I correct for that? And how should you hedge against this same risk in your organization? That's where the last three points about smart hiring come into play. And each of these three points is designed to create a hiring system that is self-selecting. One that broadcasts to the marketplace of candidates what you're looking for and what they can expect from being a part of your organization. It is very tempting to be really nice and engaging in the hiring process and to sell someone on the prospect of working with your company. If I've learned anything over the last 25 years of interviewing, it is never try to convince someone to work with you, whether that is a client, a consultant, a vendor, a contractor, or a team member in this case. Here are three keys to empowering potential team members to self-select into your organization. First, create an employment structure that attracts candidates with the responsible, accountable mindset. In our Datages episode entitled, Some of the Greatest Deals in My Career Were the Ones I Didn't Do, I shared with you how I restructured my organization about 10 years ago to move away from an employment model to an independent consultant model. Some of the basis for this decision was financial. It allowed me to reduce fixed overhead and to align my overhead with my project pursuits. However, the most fundamental impact of this decision was that it helped with instilling the responsible, accountable mindset. I find that people who embrace working in an independent consulting environment also embrace the value of responsibility and are eager to be evaluated based upon their own individual successes and failures. These are the team members you want if you're trying to build an organization based upon accountability. Second, create a hiring process that self-selects the right candidates throughout the process. Here are a few pointers to accomplish that. Be yourself. If you're a hard ass in the office, be a hard ass in the interview process. You don't have to be mean or rude, but don't be someone different than the person who will show up to work every day. That's not fair to the candidate, and it's not fair to your organization. Don't sugarcoat. The last thing to be in an interview is a salesperson. It's better to expose someone to the most real version of the work environment that you can. The job candidate will usually signal to you if they can handle it or if they can't. 
introduce other current team members to the interview process and push them to be candid and transparent. You want to make sure everyone on the team can work together and feels that they can trust the people who will be in the trenches with them. And finally, the third and probably most important aspect of creating a self-selecting hiring process, the only good interview is a working interview. Don't waste too much time on the hiring process. As I said, I've been wrong about interviews both ways, overestimating and underestimating job candidates. And I've never gotten a whole lot of insight out of reference checks. A job candidate is not going to connect you with a reference that is going to give them a critical review. If you have a specific aspect of a person's employment history or experience you need to verify or about which you need to gather more intel, then go ahead, by all means, check references, but know the limitations of the process as you go. The best way to know how well someone is going to work with you is to work with them. I try to be completely transparent in saying, let's just get started. And let's be honest with each other quickly if it's not working out. Obviously, some job candidates don't have this kind of flexibility. They may be working a steady job in an established company, and there may be no incremental way for them to start working without leaving that other position. This can be an impediment. And I have at times in the past completely bypassed hiring a team member just because I wasn't fully sold. And I was unwilling to ask them to give up something steady and stable to explore working in our organization. But more often than not, if both parties are flexible and a bit creative, a solution can be identified to allow a trial period of engagement between your organization and a job candidate. Okay, we've talked about bringing the right people into your organization in order to promote the responsible, accountable culture you are seeking. That's half the battle. Now let's talk about some key principles for managing the organization. The first we've already talked about extensively, but it bears repeating here because it's so fundamental. Lead by example. The second principle is there are no bad team members, only bad leaders. This comes back to the topics we covered when discussing hiring candidates. But even more importantly, once you've taken an individual through a well-structured hiring process and have invested in training them, It is really up to you as a manager to get the very best out of that team member. As we've said, no one is good or bad, but individuals are certainly good at certain things and certainly bad at others. It is the responsibility of a leader to assess the strengths and weaknesses and to align resources with responsibilities properly. All the way back in episode two of Dadages, I told one of my favorite stories from the workforce about making coffee and said that everyone who works for me better be willing to make coffee because somebody's got to make the coffee. But if someone on your team is terrible at making coffee, unless it is a coffee emergency, please don't have that person make the coffee. It's going to be a really bad day for everyone in the office that day. I know this is a silly example, but it illustrates the point in a tasteful manner. The third principle is alignment of incentives. I believe in the value of contingent compensation. Incentive structures that are set up properly can really supercharge your team. And this is not just about Ben Affleck giving a boiler room speech to pump people up and tell them how much money they're going to make. Proper incentives can signal team members as to where their time should be spent and what the tangible milestones or markers of success are that are available to them to pursue. 
In general, I think incentives should be directly tied to the areas of achievement that are in the direct control of the particular team member. I wouldn't tie the bonus for a project manager to the signing of a lease, and I wouldn't tie the bonus for a leasing manager to receipt of a building permit. The fourth principle is fostering both collaboration and independence. Isn't that impossible? Aren't those complete opposites? Not exactly. Independence is the ability for one team member to pursue individual responsibilities on their own. Collaboration is a framework that allows team members to work together in order to achieve better outcomes. Collaboration is not the same as dependence, which is a structure where one person's work cannot proceed effectively without the input, guidance, or work product of another person. In a collaborative, independent environment, team members can each fulfill their own responsibilities without getting bogged down in a lot of coordination with others. But team members are also there for one another. This depends in turn upon two key considerations. One is structural and the other is cultural. The structural consideration is cross-functionality. Team members should know enough about each other's responsibilities to be able to contribute and advise and to be able to step in and help if necessary. This leads to the cultural consideration, creating an I've got your back culture. When people on your team know they can count on a fellow team member to step in and help when they're struggling or to point out a mistake before it has a chance to create a negative impact, that helps to foster a strong team where everyone is taking accountability. The fifth principle I'm going to provide is captured by the notion, the closer you get to the sun, the hotter it gets. This expression means that as people are promoted through organizations, they should be held to higher and higher standards of accountability. I hired a director of development in my organization who seemed to come with a stellar background and credentials and espoused every attribute of the responsible, accountable mindset during the interview process but she had come from a very corporate background in one of the most cutthroat commercial environments in the world where people are far more likely to stab you in the back than to have your back. And she never shook that culture when she joined our company. She was always very quick to assign blame, but was never good at taking accountability for anything. When her missteps were pointed out, she became defensive rather than focusing on solving problems. For someone I intended to be the most senior leader in my company, not named Chad Hagel, she was doing far more to destroy our culture than to strengthen it. I had to cut ties with her quickly. And that brings us to the sixth principle, fire fast. If someone has been given a fair chance to embrace your company culture and take on responsibility, if they show that they're not living up to those standards, the worst thing you can do is to keep them around. As the SEALs taught us, poor performance that is tolerated becomes the standard, and that low standard is contagious. You have to eradicate the infection quickly. And now I come to our seventh and final principle for today, and we come full circle to our imaginary heart attack victim. What did I do wrong in the scenario I portrayed? I said, somebody call 911. It was likely that I would have simply encouraged the bystander effect. What's the bystander effect? According to the dictionary of the American Psychological Association, it is a phenomenon in which people fail to offer needed help in emergencies 
especially when other people are present in the same setting. If you ever take a Red Cross CPR class, one of the things they will teach you is that if you need someone to call 911 or do anything else in an emergency situation, you need to specifically point to that individual and say, you, right there, call 911. An emergency situation of this nature is an exaggerated example of what happens in organizational dynamics and how important it is for someone to take primary responsibility in a situation and assign responsibility clearly to others. In a business setting, I characterize the bystander effect in this way. Collective responsibility leads to zero accountability. If you have a group of people working together in a company, somebody has to own every aspect of the project. This doesn't impede collaboration and it doesn't require a hierarchy where one person is put in charge of the whole group. On the contrary, it is even better if individuals within the group each have accountability for an aspect of the project. The key is that there has to be a single owner of each particular task so that out of the work of the group, somebody is solely responsible for ensuring that part of the work product is complete and delivered. The task ownership can be as substantial as ownership of an entire project and its outcomes or as small as owning a single document or report. The point is just to make sure that such ownership is assigned at the individual level and never collectively. I'm just going to leave you with a few other parting thoughts about building organizations founded on the responsible, accountable mindset. One, hire smart. Two, fire smarter. Three, train even smarter. Four, operate in a state of re. Report, review, reassess, reevaluate, reassign, redirect, replace, recommit. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to check out some more great advice about building and running companies, I can suggest a couple of other past Datages episodes. One would be the distance between success and failure, uh, part two. The other would be Entrepreneur's Corner with Jonathan Orr who's a past team member of my company, Aventine. We'll put links in the description. And to conclude today, I'll share with you a story from a job interview I had early in my career. It was for a sales position. The hiring manager handed me a laptop and said, I want you to try to sell this to me. So I put it under my arm, left the building and went home. Later that day, he called me and said, bring my laptop back now. I said, $200 and it's yours. Sorry, that's not a true story at all, but it is your dad joke for today. Until next time, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now. <laughs>